This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So, why should you get involved? That's the question. I don't know, it's a funny topic because the question should be why shouldn't I get involved? But why should I get involved? So, there's something called the second look. And we learn this actually from Avram Avinu. Pashas Vayera. We know that Avram Avinu is the Rosh Hashiva, the Godol of Chesed. And what made him what made him such a big Godol in Chesed? So if you look at if you look at Pashas Vayera, it says the following: Vayera love Hashem Mamre. We all know he was sitting on the third day of his bris. He was sick. Wasn't feeling well. Hakadosh Baruch Hu saw that he was more sick about not having guests and not being able to do chesed than he was sick from the bris milah. So Hakadosh Baruch Hu sent down these three angels. We all know the story. Same thing I spoke about in the last speech. Um, so the first thing about leadership or chesed is you have to lift your eyes up he lifted his eyes up we're all very busy we Baruch Hashem have families so we have businesses we have a lot of stuff that keeps our eyes down so the first thing in Chesed is to recognize what's going on around you so the Torah starts off you can't see if you don't lift your eyes up from what you're very busy with the Pasik says he lifted his eyes and there were three people standing olav on top of him. Olav. There were Mamash standing right in front of him. Okay. But the Pasik now says a contradiction. Same Pasik. Vayar. He looked again. Second look. Vayarach Likrasam. And he ran to meet them. He ran from the Pesach O'el. And he bowed down. This Pesach is hard to understand, to say the least. First time he looks, they're standing on top of him. Second time he looks, he has to run to meet them. Either they're standing in front of him, or they're far away and he has to go to meet them. If the first Vayar, the first time he looked, they're standing on top of him, why would he run? If he's going to run, he's going to run them right over. So the Pasuk is contradicting itself. First it says, there are mamish on him, in front of him. And second it says that he had to run. We're going to explain this. Then what does he say? Adonai, my master. He's speaking to these, to these three Arabs, who he thinks are Arabs. And not only were they Arabs, but they were not high-class Arabs. They were not from Saudi Arabia with millions of dollars. One was, a, one was a, a work of the desert. One was a seafarer. They were, they were low-life Arabs. He called them my master. If I find favor in your eyes, do me a favor. Don't pass my house. So why is he calling them his master? And why is he begging them in such a way? They're, he didn't know they were malachim, so there's these three hungry guys. They're tired, they're hungry, they're fashvitzed, they're, they're thirsty, right? So why does he have to beg them? Of course they want, they're going to come. You don't have to beg guests. You don't have to beg guests. What is he begging them for? 
So first let's talk about that, that Aram Avinu was more sick that he couldn't do chesed than he was from the bris milah. So I want to tell you a story that happened with me and Rav Steinman, Gadol Hadar. So first of all, I have a relationship with Rav Steinman since I opened Arnavo. And he's a very, very serious Gadol Hadar and he's a very serious Rosh Hashiva. But I have to tell you a story that happened with us and all the people that are very close to Rav Steinman, they know the story because it was the first time they ever really heard him make a joke. So when I came to him to open up Arnava, um, he asked me, what is it? And I said, it's a place for women to come, to learn, to dance, to have food, to socialize, to grow, to have shiurim. So he said to me, and how old are these women that are coming that you want to open up for? I said, I don't know, I'm thinking 16 to 120. That's the age group. Not younger than 16 and not above 120. So he had just finished giving shear. And he looks at me, and he's the Gadol Hadar, and he says, Vas v'zayin, what would be if a woman comes and she's 121? You're going to throw her out? So I said, Rosh Hashiva, if she's 121, I will call you and ask you what to do. So he said to me, don't worry, it'll never happen. So I'm thinking Lamdish, right? I'm thinking Lamdish. Because it says you only live till May of Astron. So how could a woman come 121? She said, it would never happen. He said, you know why? I said, yeah, I'd May of Astron. Nah, 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 nah. He says, our Bible came and she never tells her real age. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So the Gedolim that were in the room, because this was his, right after his shear with Mamash, the place was laughing. They were like, Rev Steinman doesn't make jokes. Whatever it is. So from that day on, we really became very close because every time I walk in there, they're like, oh, he's the one with the 121. They all know. They all know me. So this is a true story. So I have a high school for girls um, who called Benos Chaya who have gone through some really crazy trauma and abuse in their life. And we opened it up eight, nine years ago. And these kids were mamish on the street and not in very good places. And we opened up the school. I'm not going to get into the whole story, but we opened up the school. Um, I had a father, Olav Shalom, that at that point, I had Ornava, I had a seminary. Uh, I have a business and a family and a life. And everybody asked me, like, a high school for girls, especially troubled girls, who every girl is like 100 girls. Like, like, what are you taking this on for? And I said, my father used to always say, whenever I used to tell him my plate is full, he'd say, Tati, my plate is full, I can't, I can't, I can't do anything else. So he's a big deal, get a bigger plate. That was his, that was the way he always thought. Just get a bigger plate, your plate's full, get a bigger plate. It's a big deal. So I started this high school, and it's a high school with therapy, with a lot, a lot of work. And we found that, that as much work as we did with all the therapists, and the, I have, Hashem sent me the best mamish malachim, as teachers and, 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 and the love that goes on in that school. And as much as we did, they were coming from dysfunctional, abusive homes. So I would work a whole week on these kids. And then on Friday, they would go home. They would come back Monday, shushu, cuckoo. So we would do all this work a whole week. And then it would go out the door because we were sending them back to the abusive home that they were coming from. And they were going through the same abuse. So it wasn't working. It, especially if they got off a few days, like a yantif, forget about it. So we came to the conclusion that the only way to help them is 
not only to have a school for them, but to have a house for them. So we're going to create this house, and we're going to have a, a from family living in the house. We're going to take care of the girls and a mechanechas, and we're going to have a curfew, and we're going to feed them, and we're going to take care of them, and we're going to give them a Shabbos. So all the work that we put in is going to stick. So I found this house on LUH, whatever it was. I found this house for these girls, but it was mama shambles. So the only way to make it work is I had to raise $300,000 to redo, Mamish redo the whole house, build the whole inside of the house. Didn't have $300,000. But I was going to Eretz Yisrael Yom Kippur. I'm going to go. The, the Rav tonight, tonight spoke by Shalashurus what a bracha is, Rav Lubyansky, exactly how a bracha works. If it's a nevua, if it's a bracha, if it's a, uh, listen, I just know you go to Rav Shtime and get a bracha, it's going to happen. So I went to Eretz Yom Kippur. I told my staff, don't worry. Me and Rav Steinman, we got the joke going, we're good. I'm going to get that bracha, and we're going to have this house. Okay? It's a true story. No, you did what a gadol hadar is. So I come to Rav Steinman, it's the day before Yom Kippur. I said, Rav Steinman, you remember, or not, but we, 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 now we have a high school, and, and, and the kids, and they're on. Interesting. I said, I, 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 he said, what time do you have, or I said, what time do you have? I said, well, it's still like till 11 o'clock. He said, 11 o'clock? What's going to be with the Maidluch in Brooklyn? We're out till 4 o'clock in the morning on the corners. I'm like, here's a gutter living in Eretz Yisrael. He knows what's going on in Avenue J. It's not even there. Well, they know. They just know everything. So I, I said, Rav Steinman, I told him the situation. We have this school. We work very hard. I need a bracha. I have to raise $300,000. If the Rishashiva if the could give me a bracha, that it should go easy. I said, I really want this very badly. I don't ask you for much. I want it. The girls want it. Please give me a bracha. Rav Steinman looks up at me. And he says, you want it. Who says Hashem wants it? I'm like, no, 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 Rosh Hashiva, I don't want to build a house. It's not for me. I'm not talking about redoing my house for 300 grand. It's, I said, no, no, it's for the girls. You know, the girls I take care of. Rosh Hashiva, I need a bracha. I mean, we, we really want to do this. He says, he looks at me again. He goes, who says Hashem wants such a house? And I'm thinking to myself, I didn't know I didn't get a book. I got sort of a clot like it's not happening. I got a clot over there. And, the, and I'm like, no, with the rest. And then the guy says, enough, out. Enough. You asked him twice, enough. I called up, I remember I called my brother in law, Yankee. We are in such trouble. I'm like, he didn't only give us a bracha. He pretty much said, Hashem doesn't want this house. Why wouldn't Hashem want this house? It's his daughter's. You know, you know I didn't get a bracha. I didn't get a bracha. But. Of course, the way it works with brachas is that if you don't get the bracha, right, you do it anyway. So the whole year, I didn't get the bracha. So he didn't give me a bracha. I, I went to raise this money. And I had this one guy who was going to give me the whole money. And what happens? Mamash, at the last moment, he calls me up. He says, don't start building. I got this crazy investment in Manhattan. I'm using the money. I'm investing. And I'm like, oh, Rav Steinman, thank you very much. I had him, but you didn't give me the bracha. It's fine. Tell you what a gadol is. The following year, they, I always go for, to Eretz Yisrael for Yom Kippur. The following year, I come to Eretz Yisrael. It's a day before Yom Kippur. I go to Rav Steinman. I'm like, I'm going to try this again. You don't give up. I was telling someone tonight. He's like, What do you mean we should go see the kids? We should go see the situation. You know what I mean? What, 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 and then what? And what are you supposed to do? I'm like, I'm like, you see from Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, which we spoke about this afternoon. Moshe Rabbeinu was the prince of Egypt. He sat in the palace. Do you think that Moshe Rabbeinu did not know that the Jews were getting beat? That the Jews were slaves and servants? He is sitting next to Paro. How come he never went to save them? 
He's sitting next to Paro. He's hearing every day, right? He's reading the Egyptian Cairo Gazette, right? And it's all over the place that Jews are servants. Why didn't he do anything? And it's very clear that the Pusik says that he went out. He didn't sit anymore listening to the news and reading. I'm sorry, uh, you know, I'm being taped, so it's a little, I have to be careful what I say. Shabbos, I can say whatever I want. Tonight, I have to be a little bit careful. But I read all these magazines. Nothing against all these magazines. And I read all these people's articles about kids at risk. I don't see any of them out there. I have never met them in a psych ward. I have never met them at the lake in, in, in Lakewood or in, or in Flatbush on East 18th Street. I have never met them in the middle of the night in Maimonides Hospital when a kid overdoses. What are you writing articles? You're not by Yatesay. You're writing articles from the castle of the king where Moshe sat and he heard about everything. Get out and see what's going on. Why? I had a whole discussion today with someone. Why? I said, what? We should take a bus? And load everyone in the bus, all the ladies and the men in this room. Let's go see kids at risk. A special bus. I'm like, oh, you can come to my school if you want to talk to kids at risk. I said, but the difference is that when you see, when, you, when, when he went out, when Moshe Rabbeinu went out, it says, Vayar Mesivloisam. He didn't, he didn't go to any conventions and hear about kids at risk. He didn't hear about Kleisro. That he heard when he was sitting next to Paro. He knew what was going on. But when he went out from his comfort zone, when he went out from the castle, and he went out by Yar, he went to see, you know what happens when you see kids in pain? You know when you, when you see kids who are suffering? You know what happens to you? What's supposed to happen to you is, I will not rest until this is fixed. Where do you know this from? There's a new Dikashir that I heard. Boaz... She comes to Boaz, Rus comes to Boaz and says, that he, she goes at night, she uncovers his feet, he's, he's the father of Mashiach, right? Boaz is the grandfather of Mashiach. So what, is, what happened? She uncovers his feet. They said, who, who is the grandfather of Mashiach? He says, don't worry, tomorrow, not, not two days or three days from now, tomorrow, we're going to go to Besdin. And we're going to figure this out. And she comes home, to Naomi, and what does Naomi say? I know that man. He will not rest until the deed is done. Look at Megillah's Rus. He will not rest until the deed is done. Because Boaz, who's David Amelech's great-grandfather, who Mashiach comes from, the people who are going to bring Mashiach, this is a leadership convention. The people who are going to make a difference are the people that will not rest until it's done. Those are the doers. There's a lot, of, a lot of articles and people talking and letters to the editor and letters from the editor. And I read this and I'm like, you don't even know what you're talking about. You have never been out there. You only know from what you hear. So Moshe Rabbeinu finally stepped out. And it says, When he saw what he heard, that the Jews were being beaten up, he didn't do anything. When he saw, look at the passage, a Jew being hit, he said, there's no way that I'm just going to sit by. I'm going to do something. But until then, he didn't do anything. So I come to Rav Steinman. And I say, Rav Steinman, it got worse. I got more girls in my school. 
I got, I got bigger tzaras right now. Rabbi Steinman, I need that house. You, you have to give me a bracha. I need the house. The girls need the house. I cannot send them back to the abuse. And he looks up at me. I'm not going to see it as I'm saying it to you. He looks up at me and he says to me, it's going to be easy. You're going to raise the money. He says, and I'm telling you that not only the girls are going to live in that house, the Shekhinah is going to live in that house. I was like, wow. This was a dream. But I'm a Mechotzef. So I said, uh, Rosh Hashiva, if the Rosh just tell me, is it me because I did Shuvah this year? Like, why last year Hashem doesn't want the house and this year Hashem's moving in? I mean, that's a big difference. So I said, is it me? Did I do something? What happened? This is a Gadol Hadar. You know how many people he saw that year between, between the two Yom Kippers? Thousands of people came to him. Listen to what he tells me. He says, Rav Wallerstein, last year when you came to me, you told me that you want a building and the girls want a building for your high school. What you want, Hashem doesn't always give you. So I said, who knows if Hashem wants it or not. He said, but this year you changed your Lushen. This year you said you need. You hear, you hear how a Gadol listens? This year you said the girls need. A tochter for Nakadish Baruchu? Davdapis? A daughter of Hashem needs something? Of course Hashem's going to give it to you. And I learned something amazing. And I spoke at an over 40 year old singles event. And I said, I'm not giving any muster to anyone. I said, but ladies and gentlemen, I said to both of them, I said, people who want to get married, they don't always get married. People who need to get married, always get married. Well, they weren't so happy with me. And I got a letter from a girl, and she said, Ray Wallstein, thank you. I was at that singles event. I'm married. You know why? Because I went out with this guy, and I was like, I don't know. He's not exactly. She said, but then I thought about it. Do I want to get married? I need to get married. She said, Ray Wallstein, I'm married, and I'm happy. So the difference between people who make changes in the world and don't make changes in the world are the people in the, who make changes in the world they need to help others. There are thousands of Jews out there that want to help others. I want to help kids at risk. I want to help keep, people who don't have Shiduchim. I, I want to help Chai Lifeline. I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to. And then you're like, no! After 120 years, did you? Well, I got busy with this, I got busy with that, I got busy with that. Rav Steinman says, what you want, you don't always get. It's what you need. Avraham Avinu did not want to do chesed. Avraham Avinu needed to do chesed. So the day that was so hot and nobody was there, he was sicker from the lack of doing chesed than he was from the bris milah. Now the question is, how do you take a want and make it a need? And it's mamish, there's nothing to talk about. I see it my whole life. There are kids who want to learn, and there are kids who need to learn. There are kids who want to help, and there are kids who need to help. The people who have that need, you cannot stop them. You can't stop them. 
They will go through brick walls. They will, go, they will do whatever it takes. When you see someone in pain and you need to help them, you just, you're just not going to stop. And, and we're talking about leadership. Leadership is, is, and that's what Stein was saying. What Stein was saying, you want? Everybody wants. It's in the Panasa world too. Everybody, so many times there's a guy who comes up with an invention for a million dollars and you're like, I thought of that first. I thought of Google first. What a chutzpah this guy took my idea. It's like, he, you thought about it, and a million other people thought about it, but he needed to bring it into, that's not what we need in the world, but he needed to bring this to fruition for whatever reason, and he didn't stop till it happened. Inventions, people make inventions, the ones who want, and there are people who have those ideas, and they're like, I can't believe I didn't buy that building, and I can't believe I didn't buy this building, and I can't believe, I thought about buying that building. I, yeah, there's many ideas that don't come to fruition because it's a want. The, deals that, the, 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 the ideas that come to fruition uh, is the need. And that's what Avram Avinu had. Avram Avinu had a need for chesed. Now let me tell you what these two vayars are. And, and, and you know, we talk about kirv and all these other things. You can't do kirv without a third eye. Because what you see is not what you get. And, Yaakov, and Avram Avinu had what we call the third eye, the second look. I call it the second look. So the first look, everybody, when you take a first look, it's the hine needs of Allah. It's what you see in front of you. It's right on top of you. It's right in front of you. This is what I see. When you take a second look, the second look, vayar, vayar, it's l'kosam. If you want to make a relationship, you want to help people, you have to take the second look. The first look of Roma Bino is, there's three guys, and they're standing in front of me, and they need something. The second look was, no, 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 no. Vayar, it's l'kosam. He said, I, you are my master. You are giving me the ability to do chesed. So I'm not your master. You're my master. I'm not doing you a favor. You're doing me a favor. By letting me give you tzedakah, you're doing me a favor. You're my master. He bowed down to them. How many times someone comes to your door for tzedakah, do you go and open the door and say, my master, how could I help you? You're like, the tata's nished in the hay. You know, he's busy. He doesn't have time. This was his koyach. This was Avram Venus koyach. This was... An unbelievable kayach, and, and, and this is in Kirov or in anything in life, we make so many mistakes, you know, by the first look. And I deal with kids at risk, so they're, they're, they're first, their number one complaint is everybody judges us. Everybody judges us. Everybody judges us. I walk down the street, I'm in a, sh- a short skirt, everybody's judging me. Oh, they, that's the Friedman girl. Oh, you they, she's off the derrick. Oh, they, they judge me, they judge me. Eh, you religious Jews, you judge everybody. I tell my girls, I'm like, really? Let me tell you a story, especially today after my introduction. This works perfectly, this story. I said, girls, you're you're, you're upset that from people judge you. I said, okay, so you're in a room, and myself and the the, the principal of my school is Rabbi Grossman. He has a long beard, right? So myself and Rabbi Grossman are in a room, and and someone walks over to you and says, wow, Rabbi Wallerstein's here. And you see two people, clean shaven guy and Rabbi Grossman with a beard. In your head, who's the rabbi? Rabbi Grossman. So you judge me as much as we judge you. Because I don't have a beard, you automatically thought it's Rabbi Grossman, the guy who's standing next to me. First look. First look, he needs to look across. They're right on top of you. Second look, I don't know. A beard doesn't make the rabbi. Maybe that's Rabbi Wallstein, maybe that's not. My favorite story of this is all the Flappish people that are here. There's a lady, and you know who she is. She sits in Chapanash on Fridays. A thin little lady with blonde hair. So she used to sit outside, and she collects tzedakah. And, you know, we're very, everyone's very nice. We walk outside. We put a dollar in the cup or a quarter in the cup, depending how much the coastal went up that week, whatever. But, you know, whatever, a dollar or a quarter. 
So she used to sit outside in the cold, whatever it was, and I always, how are you doing? How are you? I put the dollar in the cup. I feel good about myself. Put a dollar in the cup, right? Whatever it is. And sometimes she says, wow, Rabbi, you look so young. I'm like, okay, here's another dollar. Fine, no problem. You know what I mean? No, but I really, I think you lost weight. Here's five dollars. I'm like, so we're friends, the two of us. And I really feel good about myself. A few years ago, it was a Friday morning, and I came a little bit earlier than usual. And there was a girl, a Beshakov girl. She's standing outside, and she's handing this lady a coffee with a chocolate danish, which she bought from across the street from the pizza shop, Jerusalem 2. And she's giving it to this lady, and the coffee, and then the lady's thanking it, whatever it is, and she's walking away. And I walk, and I say, can I, can I ask you something? Is this the first time you did this? She goes, no, I do it every week. I'm like, why don't you just give her money like everyone else? She says, well, Wallerstein, this lady fasts. What are you talking about? She goes, she sits in that chair. She will not get up and get herself a coffee because she has a poor mentality. She's a poor woman. And she thinks if she's going to get up and walk across the street, three or four guys are going to walk out of Chapanash and not give her the money. So she sits through a whole day and doesn't eat because she's scared she's going to lose three, four dollars. She says, so I, I know that, so I buy her the food. And I walked away and I said, Manishtana, what's the difference between me and this girl? I'm Vayar, he may need some olive. I see a lady, she's got one of those coffee cups, you know, that never banged up coffee cup, and I put a dollar in it. First Vayar, he needs some olive. Poor lady, cup, dollar. This girl is the second Vayar in the Pusset. Vayar is Lakrasan. She doesn't see a paper cup and a dollar. She sees the person that's holding the cup. That takes the second look. The cup and the dollar is connected to a hand that's connected to a person who's freezing and starving. I never saw that person. I never took the second look. I took the first look. The first look, all I saw was a cup. I didn't see anything else. If you need, if you feel the need to help, you always need to take that second look. A kid that's off the derrick and she has a short skirt or a guy that's smoking. And I don't come from the school. I don't come. Everyone knows that. I don't come from the school that it's the parents' fault and the therapist's fault and the doctor's fault and everybody else's fault. I come. My father was a U.S. Marine, the U.S. soldier in the 112th Division in the Korean War. I was not brought up by excuses. I remember I came home one month to Shabbos from a hockey. I was a hockey player. And I came home and I said, Tati... The ice tonight was very slow. It's an expression when it's very warm in the rink, so there's water on the ice, which makes you skate slower. So I came home, and I told him after the game, I said, by the way, which is the, the, the ice was very slow, and he looked at me, and he says, you lost, didn't you? And I said, I didn't say I lost. He said, you lost. I said, how do you know I lost? He says, because only losers make excuses. No guy ever came home and said, you want to hear the excuse why I got 100 on my test? You want to hear the excuse why I won? So I wasn't brought up with feeling sorry for yourself. You got to own, you got to own your life. I don't come from there. I'm not the guy who says, do everything, buy everything, send them to Israel. I'm, I don't come from there. there there's, you, know, you have a house, you have rules, and there's the rules of the house, just like a restaurant has rules, a house has rules. But at the same time, I'm like, you got to find out what's going on. you got to take the second look. And what I mean is, if you see a girl in a short skirt, or you have a daughter and the skirt's getting shorter, the first look says, oh, my gosh, my kid is going off the derech. Oh, my gosh, look what happened to her. 
Oh, look at this guy. I can't believe it. First look, needs some olives, what I see. What's the second look? Second look is, why? Why? What's going on? That's a symptom. A short skirt is a symptom. A kid not keeping Shabbos the way he's supposed to is a symptom. Non-Jewish music is a symptom. These are not the diseases. This is the symptom. The first look, this is one of the biggest problems today. Everyone is dealing with the symptom. So we're very busy with the symptom. And guess what? When you fix that symptom, if you didn't fix the problem, it just pops out somewhere else. You know, you go to a doctor and you have a rash, and the doctor says, Oy vey, go to the go to CBS and put on, if the only people my age know what I'm talking about, calamine lotion. That was the stuff that made you look like an Indian, that pink stuff you put on and dried and camp, right? And you go to the store and you, and you say, wow, what a doctor. I put on calamine lotion, right? Or the new, the new creams that have cortisone, stopped itching. Guy's brilliant. Next morning you wake up, you have 103 fever. Back to the doctor. Take Motrin. Next day you have a headache. Take Advil. Next day your stomach is all messed up. Take Pepto-Bismol. And you're thinking this doctor is brilliant. But every time you fix one symptom, another symptom comes out. Doctor's a shaita. He's a shaita. One little, right, step culture would have come out positive, you would have given the person an antibiotic, and all the symptoms would have gone away. He's busy with the symptoms, and then it goes into the heart, and then it becomes who knows what, and then it goes into the bones, and the person's dead. But meanwhile, all the way down to that point, you were getting better all the time. But all he needed to do was take a strep culture. So the first vayar is, oh my gosh, Kaisro, kids are falling off, intermarriage, drugs, girls are cutting, anorexia, Suicide! First look is the Hinei Nitzvahalov. We're done. It's over. Oh my gosh. How are we going to handle this? The second Bayah, Bayah, it's the Krasov, is those are the symptoms. Why? Let's fix the why. Bayah, it's the Krasov. Let's run to meet them. Let's try to figure out why are we going through all this? Fix the problem. Everything else goes away. That was Avram of Venus Kayach. It's called the third eye. He was able to see past the first thing that he saw. And that takes a second look. Don't go by your first look. It takes a second look. I could tell you so many stories. I wasn't sure if I wanted to see. Hashem is very interesting. Hashem is interesting. Hashem is amazing. It's also interesting, but he's amazing. So I have certain times I don't want to talk about certain things. I don't know. It's a good convention. Should I talk about it? Shouldn't I talk about it? I don't know. Are they ready for it? Are they not ready for it? And you know, you don't know what to say. And I say it to before I walk in always. I'm like, because both should come out of my mouth what they need to hear, not what I need to say. Because usually it's not the same thing. And I always say that to before I walk in. And I have a crazy story. And I don't know if I should say it. I shouldn't say it. Maybe some people are going to be like, whoa. And I meet Rabbi Pesach Kron today. And he walks over to a guy and he says, you got to hear this story from Rabbi Wallerstein. I never heard such a story. And he says a little bit of the story. And the guy's like, and he's like, are you going to say it today? I'm like, no, I'm not going to say it today. Maybe you'll say it tonight. And Rabbi Pesach says, you got to say it. So it's like a message. I'm going to tell you what the, my story of a second look. Some of you have heard of it. Some of you have not. But it's a very strong story. That's a true story. So I, I didn't do Kirv, I didn't do Kirv Krovim. Um, I taught in a place called CHY, which is Crown Heights Yeshiva, since I'm 20. 
eighth grade Rebbe. I didn't make no speeches. I wasn't known. I didn't have no girls' school. In fact, it's a co-ed school till sixth grade. I did not like the girls. They always were. I had eighth grade boys. I blamed them for everything. The eighth grade girls. My Kodesh Baruch Hu runs the world. Ten years ago, Tishabov night. A guy that dealt, a life coach that deals with kids that were drug addicts, which I had no connection to. I didn't know kids off the derech. I taught my eighth grade boys. They came from homes that were not from. That their, their parents just sent them, Israelis, whatever it is, they just sent them to our yeshiva till eighth grade because we were babysitting. They wanted to go to public school. They had jobs. They didn't want their kids coming home at two o'clock without anyone to watch them. So I was the eighth grade. I mean, my job, my job was to make sure that they go from elementary school to yeshiva high school. That was my focus. That was my job. I had nothing to do with the kids at risk. So this guy comes over to me and says, you know, there's a place called Judah's Place on Quentin in Brooklyn. And we opened up this place for girls and boys that were doing drugs at that time. This is 10 years ago. And it's sort of a place where they have a television and a pool table and a ping pong table. And we wanted, you know, one of the things when you come out of rehab is to make sure that you change the person's environment. They're going to go back to the old friends who are doing drugs. They're going to start doing drugs again. So the objective is get them out of that environment and change the environment. You've got to change your environment. In fact, I just saw, I think it was a Koyaka, that said that Avram Avinu could not have become who he was. Hashem had to send them out of there. Why did he leave them there? He had a yeshiva and everything. He could not grow there anymore because of what the land was like. So you have to leave your environment. Sometimes to be who you are, you have to leave your environment. So these kids, so they created this place called Judah's Place, and at night, from like 9 o'clock to 1 o'clock at night, these kids who came out of rehab, post-rehab, Jewish kids, girls and boys, would go there and they would hang out. They would chill, they would watch, do this, do that. Right, fine. He comes over to me, it's, it's Erev Tishwab, he says, Rebbe Alstein, no, I heard that you tell stories. We have, this, we have like six or eight kids. Would you come Tishwab night at 12 o'clock and talk to the kids? Midnight. I'm like, well, I'm not really doing anything Tishwab night anyway. I'm like, what kind of kids they are? He says, they're kids. They were there. They're young, 14, 15, 16 kids who, who went through. Th- and they came out of rehab and, you know, talk to them. I'm like, I never talked to such kids. I don't really know how to do this. He says, you don't have to know how to do anything. Just be nice. Okay? Midnight, Tishab of night. I come to this place, Judah's place. I walk in. I never spoke to such kids in my life. I walk in. And the way it works on the street is that when the rabbi is in the street talking to the boys or the girls, so there's always one kid that will challenge you, always. That kid is going to show the rest of them that you don't know what you're talking about. And the way it works in that vikuach in the street is if the rabbi wins, if you make that guy look like mud, then everyone else will listen to you. But if he makes you look silly, they all walk away. You have no one to talk to. So there's always that one kid that's a vikuach, whether it's girls or boys. It's like... And if you back down, everyone's like, oh, Rabbi, you don't know what you're talking about. They leave. But if you do what you got to do and you win, they're all around like, whoa, what do you got to say? I don't know from this stuff. I walk in. I sit down. Shabbat my witness. I sit down on my chair. And there's a couch. And there's girls and boys on the couch. And, and I'm like, okay, um, I would like to tell you a story. I was like so scared. I was so scared, right? And this 13 and a half year old little girl, blonde girl, gets up, like mamish, like, gets up and runs up to me. And she had piercings on her face, everything, with her nose, her eyes, her, her ears. I was like, 
I checked my pockets because if I would have had a magnet, I would have never been able to get rid of her. For the rest of my life, I would have been stuck. I was like, I never saw so much metal on a person's face in my life, right? And she's in my face, right? And I'm the rabbi, and I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. And she starts cursing me. You blank. God is blank. The rabbis are blank. Schools are blank. And she's cursing. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, what are my friends, what are you doing to me here? And I don't even know what to answer. And then all the kids are like, yes, so what? Rabbi, and I'm like, uh, Hashem, help. Really, in my head, I'm like, Hashem, you put me here. It's Tishabov, help me, because this kid was mamish. I never met such a human being in my life, right? And she's like, in my face. So, so what do you have to say? So I'm like, could you tell me your name? And she's like, you don't need to know my name. I'm like, okay, no name. She cursed Hashem like 20 times with the worst curse word you ever heard in your life. And I look up at her, and Hashem sends me the, t- the, the, the email. Second look. First look, what? Dressed, not dressed, piercings, tattoo, uh, 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 a tattoo around her hand, right? A tattoo, a barbed wire around her hand. I was like, ooh, like, like, I was like, ooh, like, mom, I felt like, ooh, like, what am I doing here, right? And she's like spitting, she's like yelling, she's cursing. First look is like, I want out. Second look is, there's someone child underneath all those piercings. She has a mommy. She has a tati. She has brothers and sisters. Somebody's in a lot of pain about this child. And at the end of the day, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's daughter is cursing him with the worst words around. That's the second look. So Hashem sent me the email of my life. And I turned to her and I said, Abby, that was her name. I said, Abby, you should give the shear tonight. I'm like, no, no, let me explain to you. You cursed Hashem. That means that you believe he exists. I mean, I came here tonight to spend three hours with you guys to prove to you that there's a God. Abby, you seem to know there's one. You don't like him. I got that. You don't have a relationship. I got that, even though hate is a relationship. I said, but you didn't curse Martians, people from Saturn, gorillas in the Amazon jungle. You cursed Hashem. You believe in Hashem. This is amazing. Could you sit down in my chair? I got up. I said, could you sit down in my chair, and I'm going to sit down and tell me why you believe in Hashem. Like... How do you know? Did you like go to an H Torah thing? Like, how do you know there's Hashem? I deal with so many kids who say there's no Hashem. I'm like, really? I'm serious. I'm not making fun of you. I want to know from you how you know there's a Hashem. She wasn't ready for this. She looks at me. She goes, you're saying I believe in Hashem, right? I'm like, no, you said you believe in Hashem. You just don't like him. She goes, that is so cool. <laughs> you know, Rabbi, I never thought of that. Like, Abby, you're a Tzadikista. There's so many girls who don't believe in Hashem. They have no emotion towards him. I found one. She might be a little pierced, but I found one that really believes in Hashem. She's like, wow. Like, guys, he's as crazy as I am. <laughs> Let's hear what he has to say. You can ask my wife. I came home at 5.30 a.m. I was there for five and a half hours. 
I closed the door, we walked out. The sun was coming up already. And she turns to me, Abby, and she says, can I ask you something? I'm like, sure. She says, can you be my chavrusa? I'm like, no. (laughs) For years, not that many years, she was only like 13 and a half, 14 at that time. So I invited her to our house for Shabbos and slowly but surely she began to change. And she started to take out her piercings. But there was one piercing that she would not take out. She had a tongue ring that was a smiley. It was the weirdest thing you ever saw. Every time she talked to me, this thing would go up and down. Mama, she made me nauseous. And she'd come to my house for Shabbos, my daughters would be like looking in her mouth. Like, that is so funny. Now here's a kid that was on the street who had nothing in the world. And I went over to her and I said, Abby, here's the deal. You give me your tongue ring, I give you $500 cash. And I took the money out of my wallet and I put it in front of, this kid didn't have $4, and I didn't have 40 cents. I showed her $500. And I said, here, give me the tongue ring. And she said something to me, and this was my initiation into the world of children that are struggling. She said, Red Walstein, you don't understand. All I am is that tongue ring. That is my ID. That is who I am. If I take that out, I don't exist. Hop. That was her identity. She wouldn't take it out. She took out everything. She started to keep Shabbos. She started dressing like a mensch. That tongue ring would not come out. That's Simchas Torah. We're talking about from Tisha B'Av to Simchas Torah by Rabbi Weinfeld my, in my shul. And we're walking out. And I'm walking down the block to East. I'm on East 22nd. I'm walking towards K. And I come to the corner and I had this crazy idea. Because I heard about someone in Eretz who did it. And I said, Abby, here's the deal. You take out that tongue ring and you give it to me. I will use, I will pierce my talus bag. I will pierce it. I will put your tongue ring in my, in my talus bag. And every time I go to Davin, I will look at that smiley. I promise you, I will look at that smiley and I will remember who you are. And I will think of you. She goes, come on, Rabbi. What are all the other people in the show going to say? Did you have a tongue ring, a smiley? You're not going to do that. You're just going to promise me that you're going to do that. I'm like, if I give you my word, it's a word. No, I don't think I'm going to do it. Next block on the corner, she says, Hey, Wallstein, put your hand out. I'm like, no, 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 put your hand out. And she takes out the tongue ring from her mouth. And as as it was, I knew that if I don't chop the moment, I don't chop the moment. And she dropped the tongue ring into my hand. And she said, don't you ever take it out of your talus bag. And I said, Abby, you got my word. I will never take it out of my talus bag. And I took it and I put it in the mikvah. And then I took it and I put it, I soaked it in rubbing alcohol. And then I pierced my talus. My talus has been pierced ever since. Two years ago, I'm in Eretz Yisrael. I haven't seen her in a long time. I'm with my wife. And we're walking up the hill to Rav Shimba Yechoy on Lag Bomer. And all of a sudden, someone screams from behind me, Rebbe, is that you? 
There are two girls in all the years that I'm teaching that call me Rebbe. It's just not a usual thing. They call me Rabbi, but they don't. She called me Rebbe because I was her Rebbe. I turned around and I'm Abby! My wife was with me. She goes, no! Abigail! I'm like, Abigail. No problem. She says, I want you to meet my family. This is my husband, long beard with payas. This is my little boy, nice little payas. And this is my little girl. Abby's dressed, covered from her toes to her head with one of those high, I don't know what they're called, where you cover your hair and you're like, you cover your hair, mama, she's such a snua that her eyebrows are covered. It's like from here, right? And this huge thing that they cover their hair with. And I'm like, what's going on? I haven't seen you in so long. She's like, you're not going to believe it. I live in one of the yeshuvs over there on the border. And um, my husband bakes matzahs for badats, whatever it is, in Yerushalayim. And I, I want you to know that, as crazy as it sounds, I'm a mad rebbitzin. I'm like, what do you mean you're a mad rebbitzin? She goes, I am the third grade teacher in the Hebrew school. I am teaching third grade Hebrew. This is the girl who told me, blank Hashem. And then she turns to me and she says, in front of everyone, she starts screaming, the same Abby just changed, and she starts screaming, Rabbi Wallerstein, my wife's next to me, I don't understand you. I mean, what kind of Jew are you? You live in Schmutzbaretz? I mean, Yeshivaretz. It's a mitzvah. How can you not? The same, I promise, you can ask my wife, the same anger, the same fire that night that she screamed at me, that she hates everything Jewish. The same fire, her love for Eretz Yisrael, the same fire. First look, piercings, tattoos, which she doesn't have anymore, they're removed. Tattoos, what? What is this? Second look, underneath all that stuff, it's a Jewish neshama. Second look, first look, if you make that judgment, he needs of all of it. It's on you. It's like, I can't deal with this. Second look is a whole different look. Why was Avram Avinu, why was Avram Avinu special? Because Avram Avinu had the second look. And that's what he gave to us. That's what we got from his, from his DNA. The ability to have the second look when someone's collecting tzedakah, ladies and gentlemen. Don't look at the cup. Don't look at the paper. Look where the cup is connected to. It's a person. It's a human being that has feelings. There's someone connected to that cup. I didn't see it. That girl, that Beisako girl, she saw it. That woman would have stood there the whole day with all the money in her cup and fasted. That's the godless of a second look. You want to be a leader? You want to make changes? If you don't have that second look, and if you don't have what Rav Steinman said, if you don't need to help others, you just want to help others... You never will. It's godless in anything in life. It's godless in marriage. If you need to have shalom bias, you will have shalom bias. You won't even, I don't want to start up with therapists, but the people who need, I need shalom bias, I cannot hurt my wife. I cannot have this woman and, and, and watch her cry. I can't. I can't live like this. I don't want shalom bias. I need shalom bias. I need to make her happy. You don't need to go anywhere. If you have that need inside of you, you will have shalom bias. If you want shalom bias, then you've got to go find out from a therapist that you need shalom bias. Or a person needs something, there's nothing that can, I tried to the person before, there's nothing that's going to stop you. There's nothing that's going to stop you. 
I needed to help Abby. There was no one else to help Abby. I didn't want to go. I wasn't interested. I wasn't interested in Kirov of Kroivim. It's the hardest thing in the world. It's not Kirov Rechokim. Kirov Rechokim, you're selling them cherry pie. Shabbos, they come home. They come to your house for Shabbos. Cholent, Kugel, soup, Zmiros. Sure, they want, they want Yiddishkeit. Kirov Kroivim, they already ate the cherry pie. They're telling you, I don't like the cherry pie. I was religious. Now you've got to figure out how to take that cherry pie, put cream on it, make it look different. You've got to sell it to them a second time. It's very, very hard. But if you need to do it, you're going to do it. You need to help someone, you're going to help them. If you want to, everybody here tonight wants to. The people who are going to make the difference in the, in the, in the Jewish world are the people who need to. Anyway, here it is. My talus bag, just to show you what a person... The reason I'm showing you this is because it's very sad. Because you don't realize that those kids out there, they're not big people anymore. They're teeny little people. This poor girl, this was her whole life. It's right here. I don't know if you could zoom in on it. This is the Gansazach. This is the Tongue. This is the Smiley. Can you imagine a Jewish girl said to me, this is me. This is it. This is what happened to me. I got squashed and squeezed. This is who I am, Rabbi Wallerstein. And if you take this away from me, I am nobody. Do you understand what's going on on our streets? You know how many kids that don't even think they're this? They don't even think they're this. We have to give them back their life, but the only way to give them back their life is if you need to. And the only way you're going to need to is if you see it. If you just hear about it, it's just an article, and you'll write a letter to the editor. But then again, on the other hand, you know the story with the old man and the starfish? There's an old man who was walking on the beach, and there was a low tide, so all the starfish never got stuck on the sand, and they're all dying. And he goes, and he picks up a starfish, and he starts to throw it into the water. And a young man goes by and says, old man, you're a fool. There are millions of starfish. You can't, you can't save them all. And he turns to the young boy and he says, no, you're the fool. He says, you see this starfish that's in my hand? His whole world I'm about to save. And he throws it into the water. Just one kid. Just one starfish. It's not about saving all the starfish. It's about saving one starfish. So everybody thinks that um, it's got to be, you got to be, you got to be, today they were telling me, right, Walton, but you have to know what to say to the kids. You have to know how to say to the kids. You can't just go up to kids and you can't just do that. And I'm like... Tell you another story about need. The first year I opened up my school, so I was a partner with the Jewish Board for Children's Services on Quentin. And they told me that I could only have 15 girls in the school. They gave me a free floor. They said they were going to give me free therapists. They didn't. They built the kids, whatever it was. But they gave me a free floor and they said, if you want us to partner with you, 15 girls, that's it, no more. So the first year I opened the school, I, I, I got into the street and I told everyone, I'm willing to take girls, you don't have to pay, just come to dead, we have therapy. Anyway, to make a long story short, we had 15, we had 14 girls, we had room for one more girl. And there were three girls coming, myself, Rabbi Max was there, and the, and the principal, and we had to, there were three girls coming for that one spot. Okay? First girl walks in, her name was Fega. She walks in, she had just come from three days in the mountains at Jewstock. Instead of Woodstock, it was called Jewstock. And all these kids that were up there, they were drinking and rock and roll and the whole thing and pot and marijuana. And this girl comes to the interview to get into my high school stoned. She sits down in front of me with her father and mother and pretty much her head hits the desk. 
out. I'm like, um, could you wake your daughter up? I mean, it's an interview for high school, right? <laughs> so they shake her and she goes, huh? I'm like, Vega, why do you want to come to my school? I don't know. Boom, head goes back down again. So I kicked Ezra Max, who was sitting next to me. I'm like, I'm not taking a pothead into my school. No, I'm not taking her. But you have to make nice. You don't want to tell the parents right away up front. So I'm like, tell me about you. Okay. I'm like, we'll get back to you. The two other girls waiting in the other room. I said, we'll get back to you. They get up. They bombish, pick her up out of the chair. Right? They're about, Hashem runs the world. They're about to walk out. So I say to the parents, by the way, how your other kids doing? Well, I mean, this, this one doesn't seem to be doing so well. And I remember him like that. He's a tall, he's a tall Obamacher man. And he turns to me and he goes, but Wallerstein, she's my only child. I'm sitting there, really? She says, yeah. We had her late in life. Figures our only child. I'm like, you don't, you don't have to wait till tomorrow. She's accepted. And Ezra's like, what? I'm like, first look is, she's a drug addict. What do I need her for? Second look is, this is it! She don't make it? Kares! It's over for this family. He don't have any other kids. It's over. I'm like, how could we not take her? Fagan was taken that day. I said, try to clean her up, let her sleep for two weeks, right? But, you know, and she came to my class, to our school. Fagan's very famous, Fagan. I can't say her last name. She's great. She was one of the funniest girls I ever met in my life. She was great. And she's clean and she's great. And thank God I asked him, what about your other kids? Because once, let me explain to you, once I heard she was an only child, I didn't want to take her into my school. I had no choice. I needed to. So we had to figure out how to make it work. An only child? The way we have to look. And Baruch Hashem, I got the other two. I snuck them in. We didn't tell them. We had 17 kids the whole year. They thought we had 15 kids the whole year. But whatever it was. First look, she's a drug addict. How do you come to an interview like that? I mean, you know you're coming to an interview with two rabbis. Like, what are you doing? Second look, she's an only kid. She's an only child. You have to have the second look. If you want to help others, you have to have the second look. The people who make changes in this world are the people who look past the short skirt. There's a girl underneath that. She has a mother and a father who are not sleeping. Her future. He brings down a very ridiculous story in, in uh, Elena Lushabeach. I love this story. He brings it down in Elena Lushabeach. He t- I, I don't know, it's somewhere in Schmaltz, I think. I can find it for you. But he brings it down in Elena Lushabeach. He says the following story. He says there was a boy in yeshiva, big troublemaker. And the yeshivas were thinking, I don't know what to do with him. We should really get rid of him. He's affecting the other kids. But we're going to keep him. One day, yeshiva <laughs> walks into the base marriage, and there are noises coming from the Aranakoidash. And it sounds like a goat. And all the kids are plotting. Rashiva walks up to the Rana Kodesh. I imagine, the reason I like the story is because I could see that I might have done it when I was a kid. But like, he got there, he got there, he, it was his idea. Anyway, so he opens up, the Rashiva opens up the Rana Kodesh, and a goat jumps out. And the place is on the floor. Okay, we know who wrote Elena Shabbat. He's not writing stories that aren't true. So the Rashiva calls the boy in, and the place is on the floor. Goat. He put a goat in the, in, in the Rana Kodesh. True story, never too strong. So the Rashiva calls him into his room. He says, out! You cannot stay in this yeshiva. Put a goat in the Arnakoidesh. Out! 
kid says, I'm not leaving. So what do you mean not leaving? I just threw you out of school. I'm not leaving. On one condition, I'll leave. So he brings down the story in a little. On one condition, I'll leave. We go to Besdin about this. But Shashiva says, Besdin? Yes. You want to throw me out? We're going to go to Besdin? Shashiva says, what are you going to Taina? What are you going to Taina? You put a goat in the, in the, in the Arnakaitis. Like, what are you going to... It's not, it's not up to you what I'm going to Taina. You cannot throw me out unless we go to a Besdin. Fine. So they go to a Besdin. I think it was Yushalayim or the name Barak. They go to a Bezdin. Rashiva gets up first. He says, this Bacha, he put a goat in the Oran HaKodesh. The whole place was plotting. I, I can't have him in my yeshiva. Okay, we hear you. Makes sense. He says to the little boy, so what's your taina? He says, I'm taining lahalacha. So what's the taina lahalacha? He says, if you throw me out of yeshiva, you're affecting my children. Because if you throw me out of yeshiva, I'm going to be off the derech, and my children are going to be off the derech, and my grandchildren are going to be off the derech. He says, isn't it a halacha that when a bezdin makes a judgment, that the tayin and the, and the they both have to be there? So, so he's on one side, but my children aren't here to defend themselves. Because the din you're about to paskin affects my children and my grandchildren. But the halacha is that the people that it affects have to be in bezdin together with the tayin. They're not here yet. So you can't paskin against me until they're here, but they're not here yet. So he only brings it down the safer. So he says, so the Bezdin looks at Rosh Hashim and says, this Eloi, it's an Eloi, he says, this Eloi you want to keep. And he writes that he doesn't want to say who the Gadol is, but that this boy became a Gadol Hadar. Why? The second look. The first look, Kid put a goat in the Arna Kodesh, you need to throw him out. The second look is here, but he has children and grandchildren that are going to be affected by this. You can't throw him out. <coughs> That's what we need to learn. We need to learn to have the second look. And it comes when it comes to your children, it's the same thing. To have a second look when it comes to your daughter-in-laws, when it comes to your mother-in-laws, when it comes to husbands and wives, when it comes to relationships, you have to have a second look. I talk about Nechinach, you know, kid comes home with a 50. Right? He comes home with a 50. And the mother, not only the mother or the father, the mother's like, Chaim, you got a 50? Do you, do you know how hard your father works to pay tuition and tutors? Do you know that when he sees his 50, he's going to have a heart attack? Do you know you're killing him? I mean, how could you come home with a 50? Do you realize that your sister's in Shiduchim? And the word's going to go out that our family are a bunch of failures? She's never going to get married. And what am I going to tell my friends? They all have kids in the same class. They're going to be calling me tonight, right? Well, it's going to be on the school chat that all their kids did very well, and you're a failure. I'll never be able to talk to my friends again. What are you doing? First look. Kid Nebuch, right? Then they don't understand. I don't understand, right? Well, Austin. I don't understand, right? Well, I don't understand what's going on. I mean, she's mommy. She, 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 she needs therapy. She's depressed. She's walking around shaking. She needs help. And I'm like, excuse me, your daughter's walking around, and you know what she's thinking? I killed my father. <laughs> my sister is going to stay single for the rest of her life. My mother lost all her friends. I'm like, what are you doing? Now let's go to the second look. Second look, a kid comes home with a 50 What's the second look, everybody? What's the second look? The second look is the 50 she got right, not the 50 she got wrong. The first look is the 50 she got wrong. The second look is the 50 she got right. 
Ah, let's change it. Shefalo, you got 50, right? How'd you do that? Let's sit down. Let's take a look at the ones you got right. I know it sounds like sugar, right? It saves you a lot of money in therapy and medicine. A lot of money. You got 50% right. Question number three was so hard. It was much harder than question number two. What happened? Hold on, let me look. You're right, my. I know I was dreaming a little bit. You're right. Shaveful of 50, right? You're halfway there. Next, next time, I'm a teacher, 37 years. I'm not talking stam. I'm in the trenches. Next test, 60. Next test, 65. I'm not telling you she's going to ever get 100. Second look is what you got right in life, not what you got wrong. Second look in a marriage is what she does right for you, not what she does wrong. Second look in a marriage is what he does right for you, not what he does wrong. I have a, I have a, I give not chasen classes, but the boys who I teach Tuesday nights. So they, I always the night before they get married, I give them a class, and then afterwards they talk to me. A guy gets married, and a month later he comes to my Tuesday night shear after the shear at twelve o'clock. He's like, Rebbe, I need to talk to you, and I'm like, uh oh. He says, Rebbe, I need to get divorced. I'm like, come on. He married one month. What happens? He says, she's not normal. I'm like, what else happened? <laughs> so this is what he tells me. Listen to this. He tells me that she sent them out a few nights before that to get, him four, to, get, to get her four cans of string beans. String beans. She's making a salad. He goes to the store. And he comes home with four cans of asparagus. Okay? He takes the t- he puts it down on the table. He doesn't even look. He puts it down on the table. She takes out the first can from the bag. What? Asparagus? Oh! You were on the phone with your friends again? What? You can't even bring home string beans? You don't love me. You're not even thinking about me. You don't even care about me. And she starts off on him, and she's going crazy on him. And if your friends asked you for string beans... You'd bring home string beans. But me, you bring home asparagus. He says, Revy, I promise you, I shot for my mother. My mother always told me, don't take the cans in front. Those are the ones that are dated very late, and they put them in front, and the fresh stuff, they put it back. So I wanted to be a good guy. It's a true story. I wanted to be a good guy. So there was string beans, and I put my hand in the back, and I took the four cans in the back, and I did it. It's the grocery guy's fault, not mine. And there were asparagus, and I didn't look. I thought I didn't look, because I thought I was going to be a good guy. And he's like, how can I be married to someone who's screaming and yelling? And then, the guys on this side of the room will understand this. He says, and he says to her, it's not a problem. Shayful, it's not a problem. I promise you I'm going to take them right now. I'm going to go back to the store. It's only two blocks away. And I'm going to change them. She's like, I don't want your string beans anymore. (laughs) I'm not even going to make a string bean salad. And the foolish guy's like, oh, you're going to make asparagus? That's what you're going to make? And he's like, she's crazy. I I made a two-minute mistake and I did it for her. She's crazy. I said, no, she's not crazy. I said, both of you need the second look. She should have said, one second, you're learning in yeshiva. I took you because you're a Kerala guy and you're very smart. Like, you can't figure, like, something's wrong here. I asked you for streamers, you brought me asparagus. Must be that someone made a mistake, probably the store. That would have been the second look. I married a smart guy, he could read the label. And his second look should have been, I, I understand, I just married her, and she thinks I don't care about her. She asked me from the little thing, and I, and I, and I didn't listen to her. So of course she's hurt. 
but they both didn't take a second look. She looked at what she saw, he looked at what she said, he wanted the divorce. Of course, it didn't end up in the divorce. I called her down, and the whole thing washed away, and it was nothing. It was, a, it was nothing. But the first look between husband and wife, you have to take a second look. It's not the, 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 the first look is what needs of all of. The second is Bayaret's Lekosom, is running to meet that person. So I'm going to end, because I got the signal from the back. I'm going to end with a, a story that I always end conventions and places that I go to try to make changes. Very famous story. So, I'll say it very fast. So there was a, I have a Talmud, I have a student that, that Baruch Hashem, I, I'm, I, I sort of, I sort of, he didn't have a father in his whole life, so I was sort of his father and I wanted to mold him into what I do, so I wanted him to be a Rebbe half a day and a businessman half a day and he went to law school and today he's talking a superstar Rebbe and a superstar lawyer. He does lawyer half a day and he does, and he's a Rebbe half a day. So when he went to law school, he came back and he told me an amazing class that he went to was called Coach, Coach Your Client. He told me the following story, and we'll end with this, that um, the professor got up and he said there was a story where there was this um, guy that was um, a very rich, powerful uh, politician, and um, they, they, they were charging him with murder because he was in a hotel with a girl, and, he, and, 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 and they heard screams and yelled, and she was murdered, and she disappeared, and whatever it is, and they, it was a huge case. It was a huge case. And they accused him of murder, first degree, whatever it was. And he was very rich and powerful, so he hired a very famous lawyer who never lost a case. He was called the $5 million lawyer. His retainer was $5 million, but he never lost a case. So this guy who was very rich, he got him as the lawyer. And the way it works is in the DA, so they, they give you an assistant DA, but the assistant DA goes like on a lottery. Whenever it's their turn, so Nebuch, the poor kid who was the assistant DA who got this case, was fighting the $5 million lawyer. No chance. This guy just came out of school. You know what I mean? He was, he was wet behind the ears. There's no way he's going to beat the most famous lawyer in the world. But he got the case. So to tell you really fast, so they both they, they start the case. And, you know, the, the $5 million lawyer has the bow tie and the Gansamaisa. And this poor kid's like a little jittery because he's going, he's going, he knows if he wins, he'll become the most famous lawyer. But how are you going to win? So he gets up and he starts prosecuting. And very, very, he prosecutes, and the woman's on, and there's a witness, and the witness said, I heard screams, and I heard yells, and it was three o'clock, and da, 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 da. he gets off, now comes, everyone's watching New York Times, everyone's in there, Daily News, they're going to watch the defense lawyer, the defense lawyer gets up, and he says, um, how do you know it was three o'clock? She said, I looked at my watch, what kind of watch do you have? Timex, cheap watch. Would you say that it might have been 301 or 259? She goes, yeah. He goes, okay, I rest my case. I well, huh? Of course, examine the watch. This goes on, everybody, for a week. This prosecuting guy, oh, he's bringing witnesses, he's bringing evidence, he's bringing everything, and the $5 million lawyer is doing nothing. He's making jokes. He's cross-examining for 20 seconds, and the Times is writing that they never saw him like this, they think he had a nervous breakdown, he's not doing it, and Nebuch, the guy who he's defending, is sitting there, and he's like, what are you doing? You're killing me. I spent $5 million, you're killing me, what are you doing? He's like, I will win this case. Don't worry about it. Okay. Case is over took a week. Judge says, summation. Summarize the whole case. So now the assistant DA is already cocky. He feels really good about himself. So he gets up and he goes to the jury and he says, I think I have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that, that the accused is guilty of murder first degree and you must find him guilty and we will put him away for life. And all the jurors who are sitting there are like, yeah. In their mind, they're like, this guy's gone. There was enough evidence. He's gone. Summation defense lawyer, the $5 million man. 
gets up. He goes, yeah, I read the articles. Everyone's writing. Then I had a nervous breakdown. He says, you must all be wondering why I didn't do any defense for the last week. He says, I really didn't want to waste your time. I didn't want to waste my time. You see, the, the accused supposedly killed this girl, the victim, but you see, the victim called me. She's in Mexico. She ran away from her parents. That's why there is no body. So I'm like, I'm not going to sit there a whole week. I called her back. I said, you get into that courtroom by Friday because you need to show them that there's no case whatsoever. And you know what? I got an email. She's going to be here at 3 o'clock. That's my summation. So everyone's like, New York Times, everyone's running around. And they're all saying like, whoa, it's unbelievable. There's no victim. And this poor assistant DA feels like, momish, nobody. Finally, it's 3 o'clock. Everyone gets back into the courtroom. Everybody's sitting there. Everybody's watching. 3 o'clock, 3.15, 3.30, quarter to 4, 4 o'clock. No, at 3.30, right, this, all of a sudden the door opens, and a woman walks in, and everybody jumps. Everybody jumps. She's here? No. It's not. It's a, it's a court recorder. She just had to change with the other woman that's there. 4 o'clock, the judge says, you know what? I don't know what you're doing, mister. But if she comes, she comes. In the meanwhile, summation. So he gets up this brilliant lawyer. And he says, Is it true or not true that the jury was looking at the door between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock? Yes. We were. Is it true or not that the jury jumped at 3.30 when the door opened? Yes, we were. Well, if the prosecution proved beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a murder... Why were you looking at the door? Why did you jump? That means that you believe that she could come walking through the door. Well, in American law, unless proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, American law says you're innocent. So being that you all looked at the door, including you, judge, that meant that you believed it was possible that she would walk through that door. And if you believe that, that means that the prosecution did not prove it Beyond a reasonable doubt, I move to find my client innocent. Absolutely brilliant. He fooled them all. He was right. The judge turned to the jury. He says, I don't know what to tell you. We were looking at the door. We did think she was going to walk through. We did jump when the girl walked in. I guess we wasn't proven. But you got to go into your room, jurors, and you got to do what you got to do. And the guy who's sitting there, he's like, wow, my lawyer. He's brilliant. He's brilliant. He fooled them. They're all looking at the door. Jury comes out. Jury person gets up. We find the accused guilty of manslaughter first degree. And the courtroom goes crazy. What? It's impossible. The judge says, no, no, you can't do this in my courtroom. We were all looking at the door. We, he didn't. Pr- and everyone's screaming and yelling. And the jury person says, excuse me, could everyone just be quiet? I have something else to say. She says, really? We, we were going to find the accused innocent. But there was one girl on the jury that she needs to speak. And this young 19-year-old girl gets up, or 21-year-old girl gets up, and she says, you see, everybody was looking at the door, but I was looking at the accused. And from 3 to 4 o'clock, he never turned around. And when the door opened and the young girl walked in, he still didn't turn around, which meant that he was the only one in the room that knew for sure she wasn't coming through that door. 
And the only way that he could know that she wasn't coming through that door is because he murdered her. Guilty. And the million dollar, five million dollar lawyer gets up and he runs to the accused and he picks him up and he says, you fool. I did everything. All you needed to do was turn around for one second and you would have been a free man. And now you're gone forever. And the professor turns to all these young guys who are becoming lawyers and he's like, no matter how brilliant you are and no matter how brilliant the story you build, coach the client. Tell him what you're doing. That was his, that was his, his, his lesson. When he told me this story, I said, Yehuda, it's a big story. The Agurda Convention. You all hear whole Shabbos. You're going to hear tonight. You're going to hear tomorrow. You're going to hear the best lawyers. The best rabbis, the best speakers, the best lawyers. But if you don't turn around and look at the door and make a change, if you listen like that guy listened, but you don't turn around, that means when you leave here tomorrow, if you don't change the world, if you don't change yourself, that means you don't believe anything that you heard. And then you are guilty as that guy is guilty. So I'm going to coach the client. Take something from this convention and don't just sit there. When you leave, do something because you need to, not because you want to. And maybe if we do that, when we turn around to look at that door, Mashiach will come through it. Agudavachan, thank you. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.